When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. By a show of hands, how many of you, by the age of 25, had either acted up in school, went somewhere you were specifically told to stay out of, or drank alcohol before your legal age? How many of you have shoplifted, tried an illegal drug, or got into a physical fight, even with a sibling? Now, how many of you have ever spent one day in jail for any of these decisions? How many of you listening to this now think that you're a danger to society or should be defined by those actions of youthful indiscretion? These questions were how prosecutor Adam Foss started out his now iconic TED Talk in February of 2016. As one of Boston's leading voices for compassion and criminal justice and the 2017 Nelson Mandela Changemaker of the Year, Adam is someone that inspires me greatly. And I knew I had to get him on the podcast for an interview because, well, he's just our kind of person. And the folks at Life is Good were kind enough to make the introduction for me. It's actually really crazy how this conversation all came together. The recording actually took place just a few days ago on Positive Thinking Day, which is a day that celebrates positive thinking. And the folks at Life is Good held a storytelling event to celebrate all of the good happening in the world at the Life is Good headquarters in Boston. I had the incredible privilege of speaking out there with Adam and former podcast guest Ruthie Lindsay, who we all know and love, and also former podcast guest John Jacobs, the co-founder of Life is Good. We were all there speaking about hope and optimism, and it was my absolute favorite thing ever. Actually, just got back from Boston. I am very tired, but so enthusiastic about this episode. It was such a party, so much fun, and uh, I just wanted to mention that because if you sense a little bit of extra optimism in today's episode, the whole Life is Good team is to thank for that. (laughs) So we got to have Adam Foss on the podcast for today's episode. Adam is currently the founder of Prosecutor Impact, a nonprofit organization built around the mission of improving community safety in the U.S. through a better understanding of the most important actor in the criminal justice system the criminal prosecutor. Adam started his life in an orphanage and became a 21st century giant of justice. Not to mention he's also advised President Barack Obama on criminal justice reform and worked with countless celebrities. I hope that sounds intriguing because I'm so excited about this episode. Today we hear Adam's story and hopefully the beginning of a perspective shift in your story. I am Brandon Harvey and this is Sounds Good, the weekly podcast where we talk with incredible humans who are rejecting cynicism and using their passions to move towards authentic and messy hope, justice, and joy. I'm kind of freaking out about this, so let's just jump straight into this awesome conversation. So we are here in Life is Good headquarters, which is 
in Boston. Uh, are you from Boston originally? Uh, I was born in Bogota, Colombia. I was adopted by some lovely Irish Catholic white people. I grew up <laughs> in the suburbs of Boston in a town called Pepperell, Massachusetts. Oh, wow. And moved to Boston about 15 years ago. 15 years ago. Yeah. But you've always been in this area? Yeah. But did you like ever leave for any extended period of time? I went away from my freshman year of college to um, a small liberal arts school in the middle of Pennsylvania. And then you came back? And then I came back. <laughs> and uh, That's awesome. When I came back, I went to UMass Amherst. So I spent three, four years out in Western Mass. Okay. So what's it like growing up to two like white Catholic parents outside of Boston? For the longest time, I didn't realize. I knew. I always knew that I was different. Obviously, I looked different than all the kids I was growing up with. I looked very different than my parents. Um, but I, I never sort of felt different. I, I didn't really understand the the concepts of structural institutional racism, mm. even though in retrospect it was happening all the time. Um, I've I've done a lot of growing and reflecting on what my childhood was like in actuality. Um, being a person of color in a place that none existed. Yeah. And that self-awareness is so hard when you're young. Like, right. you know, whether it's with something that big or just littler things, it's hard to be aware of that context until you're kind of thrown out of that or until you're confronted with it. What I'm most aware of now uh, is what I did and what, what I compromised to fit in. Mm. Um, and that to me, that to me is the, the biggest lesson I've taken away from growing up in that environment was sort of the, the sacrifices that I made to my personal dignity, really, to like mm. fit in with my peers. That's interesting. Was that, is it just kind of the, the culture of the city, the culture of, of being, you know, mostly like white folks is all of that? What, what exactly was it that? You had to sacrifice. Getting picked on in a certain way, you know, getting called minority and being okay with it. Mm. Um, letting people like pull my hair and, and, you know, just make jokes about my skin tone and my body type and my my hairstyle and, and really just acquiescing. Yeah. Kind of so, to cope, you're saying like, oh, no, it's fine. Like they're just they're just joking. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's not. Right. Okay. Right. <laughs> um, okay. So. Fast forward a few years, you become a prosecutor down the road, and we'll get to that. But like growing up, what was your experience with law like? Did you even like have like I know that I I probably still don't really know what a prosecutor is. Yeah. Um, did you have any clue what that was like growing up? Like wh- where did that paradigm come from for you? Didn't come until after college. To okay. Be with you, um, both of my parents were blue collar workers uh my town was very working class so i didn't know any lawyers growing up um had my own infrequent scrapes with the law so i knew a bit of the process but i i don't remember as a kid like knowing who the parties were in court yeah except the judge because that one was obvious and growing up in a place where i had just by virtue of who my parents were i had white privilege i really didn't get the chance to experience the justice in the way that the young people that i work with do um, so the prosecutor thing wasn't something that happened until, uh, law school. Okay. And, and what inspired law school for you? Inspired is an interesting word. <laughs> I, I fell victim to going to law school the way that I think a lot of, a lot of my peers do in that we come out of college. I went into the workforce and I was just like, well, I'm not going to do this for the rest of my life. I need to do something more. 
And around that period of time was, you know, it sort of shifted from you can get anywhere with a college degree to college is cool, but you also need a, a you know, a post-secondary education degree. Yeah. So I just sort of went to law school because after three years of working out in the field, I was just like, oh, I'll go to, I'll go to this school. I wasn't yeah. going to go to business school. I wasn't going to go to med school. So I went to law school. And you look and sound reluctant. <laughs> is that kind of how it felt for you too? Yeah. I mean, it was exciting. Like I never pictured myself being a lawyer. The really only experience that I had with law was on television. Um, <laughs> and you know, the, the coolest lawyer that I ever saw was Claire Huxtable on the Cosby show. And I just mm. thought like, I, I honestly remember being a young adult thinking to myself, well, that, that'll be cool. Like to be that, yeah. to have that power and that gravitas and that swag, that'll be cool. Um, but going in, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, I was doing it completely independently. Um, I didn't have sort of the adult supervision that maybe I should have had at the beginning because again, my parents, like none of us knew anything. I was the first person in my family yeah. to graduate from high school, let alone go, go to uh, law school. And so to enter that field with the background that I had and go into a place where everybody around me had at least one, if not two parents with a college degree, if not a professional degree, everybody was from an affluent community for the most part. Um, once again, I was in a place that was very homogenous. It was challenging for sure. Man. Okay. And so tell me about that first year. Then you walk in, you're like, Oh my gosh, I'm different than all these other kids. These other kids have come from a place of, of privilege and experience. And they, they maybe even already have connections or, you know, have context for, you know, what this whole law world looks like. And you're just kind of jumping in out of interest or, need did that shift within the first year like did you start to get more footing or what did that look like in the first year i started law school with this idea that i was just gonna run over um that everybody that i was going to be around was way smarter than me and that uh for a lot of reasons i wouldn't make it and it was uh during during the year as i went along i was like oh everyone is smarter than me but it actually makes me a better student and i enjoyed that it was it was different than being in college or being in high school uh, where you could sort of like, if you applied yourself, you could be at the top, you know, like applying yourself wasn't enough in law school. You really need to go the extra mile. So that was good. Um, I was also older than most of the people that I went to law school with because I'd taken three years off mm. after college. And I think that perspective of real life, like having to go out and pay an electric bill and, and have responsibilities that didn't have to do with an academic institution yeah. um, took a lot of the stress away from me because the people who would come right from law school to college we're sort of in that mentality where we're just like, I need to get straight A's and I need to be, yeah. stay up all night and, and do things. I don't know how to prioritize my time. And so there was a, there was a turning point at some point in the first year where I was just like, this is, I got this. I got this. And, That's good. Um, I, knew, I knew then that I, I'd finish law school and I'd be fine. And so you finish law school and what's your first step? Like what's the first thing you do? Uh, when I finished law school, I'd already had accepted a job at the DA's office. So okay. I had to take that first few months to study for the bar exam, which was one of the worst experiences of my entire life. That goes from May until July. You take the test over the course of two days, and then you're done. And then you wait for your (laughs) exam results. And I had a few months off, so I toured the country with my band for like six weeks. Okay, so back up. You were in a band on top of law school. Yeah. What kind of band? Uh, It was like a funk rock band. That's amazing. Yeah. 
how did that go? Like, what was that like being in law school and having a funk rock band? That's incredible. Uh, it was. I've it, never heard this. Like, I I did a lot of reading about you. I feel like this is a secret that you have been keeping. Nah, it's um, <laughs> I was a lot more active in it when I was not in school. Yeah, uh, those three years between college and law school are really the time that like this the band was like a core part of my life and law school uh like a lot of people who are doing creative or other things like law school just takes that away from you because you don't have the bandwidth no pun intended but um you know i was still i was still active that they the band was still performing while i was in school and so when i could join them i would and um that last tour was my last tour with the band Mm. um and that was some of the best time of my life just because I was in this transition period yeah. and I was with my best friends and we were seeing the country and playing music. You know, you finish out this tour and you know that kind of the band is coming to an end and you're about to start this totally different thing that a few years ago you never even dreamed you would be at. Was that terrifying or exciting or, or both? It was exciting um, in the sense that one, I knew that the band would continue on, and if I want, if if I wanted to go back, I could, and I did a few times. You know, I just didn't, I didn't go, I didn't commit to yeah. a six-week national tour. I don't think terrifying was ever a feeling that I terrified was ever a feeling that I had. I was, I was really, really excited. I was proud. Um, I was, I was representing my family in a way that we'd never been represented, and I recognized making it through law school um, how few people of color make it hmm. and you're wearing a, a shirt right now that says black lawyers matter right which you know i think is powerful because i i don't know what the statistics are but uh i presume that it's not enough it's it's and it's abysmal. not representative either it's abysmal when you think about access well when you first think about like how many how many black males are graduate from high school and then how many of them go on to just get into college and then once getting into college, how many of them finish? And then after that, after all of those things, how many of those people then have the financial access or the connection to get into professional school? Mm. And again, you go through the whole thing. How many of them start? How many of them finish? And then how many of them are employed and not just sunk by debt afterwards? Yeah. And you know, there's, there are law schools in this area who I know have admitted like one black male student in a, in a year. Wow. And there's a debate about it, whether it's supply or it's demand. But um, I, I know that there are, are black men and black women applying to law schools everywhere. And yeah. a lot of them just aren't getting in. And when they do, they don't have a very good experience. So and at my law school, they tried really hard to, to set up a supportive environment. But hmm. still, um, a lot of the people that I started with didn't make it through the first year. And oh. by the time we got to the end, we were down to like seven or eight of us. So, And that's so hard because you know, disproportionately black people are affected by the criminal justice system. And to have that underrepresentation in the criminal justice system enforcing things, that's a problem. And I rock this shirt because not for the general proposition that black lawyers matter, but because I think it was the Marshall Project uh, mm. did a study about uh, plea bargaining and, and disposition of criminal cases when the public defender was black or white. And they found that people, not surprisingly, disproportionately, um, when a black defendant had a white lawyer, they were pleading out to cases where they would get better resolutions if their lawyer was black. Hmm. That's not to say that it's the be-all, end-all. 
Um, but it's it's a really interesting thing to think about when, yeah. you're, when you're talking about sort of the empathy gap in professional jobs um, and really understanding people who commit crimes as people instead of a client that I need to absolve of guilt. Yeah. Okay, so I, I want to back up really quick, though. Before you even, you know, went on your final tour with your funk rock band, while you were still funk rocking, you had a first experience in the criminal justice system that I would presume, you know, talked you into or, you know, inspired you to actually continue pursuing this. What was that first experience like? When I went into law school, because I, w- I was working uh, with my band, but I was also managing and booking other bands around, first around Boston and around New York, I thought to myself, I'll go to, if I'm going to law school anyways, I'm going to be an entertainment lawyer and I can, I can do this you know, Got it. for some money. Yeah. And immediately I was, tar- I was just like, this is garbage. I, this, mm. this isn't interesting to me. It's not, it, I don't feel fulfilled about it. And so I got through that first year of law school and I got to the end and I remember thinking to myself, all right, I'm going to finish, but I, like, I don't feel any passion about this. And um, I was concerned. And a, and a professor that I had never met uh, didn't know her. I, she, she wasn't a professor in any of my classes, came up to me and she said, um, I've spoken to an alum who is a judge in Roxbury Court. He's looking for a law clerk. Would you like to do it? And just because I had no other job prospect over the summer other than landscaping, I said, sure. Um, I, was, I was one of the only students that I knew that didn't have like a law-related job over mm-hmm. the summer. So I was interested in, for that reason. And she said Roxbury. And Roxbury was a place that growing up I knew was like the the place where all the crime happened. So, oh, got so it. when she said the criminal court in Roxbury, I was like, oh, hell yeah, I'll, I'll go and watch, you know, the action. <laughs> and on the first day, literally from the time that I dro- – just driving there, I was having this experience of – and I didn't know it at the time of just like – um, sort of existential social justice crisis. Hmm. Um, and then when I finally got into the court and walked in the courthouse and walked in the courtroom, I, I just was taken aback by what I saw um, in terms of the population of people that were there, the reasons that they were there, the way that they were treated, the way that people were operating, the inefficiency of the system, the poor outcomes it seemed that that people were achieving this was on the first day yeah and that's when i knew that the criminal law would be where i'd remain for the rest of my career and were you were you seeing these inefficiencies and these problems based off of your experience in law school or just based off of being a human being watching this the latter i you know law school is good for a lot of things but one of them is not teaching any practical Hmm. skill um, and this was at the very end of my first year, so I had very little experience in real world law. Um, I had been through the juvenile justice system a little bit and the adult justice system a little bit through adolescence and college. And so I had my own sort of ideas of what court and the criminal justice system were like, but those were in very um, rural, white places. I had never yeah. been to an or- urban court setting. And when I sat there, and this is what I encourage a lot of people to do at this point, is just go and watch. When I was sitting there, you can you can see as a as a complete layperson to the system, you can see how epic of a failure it is. You can just walk in and sit down, and you can just watch. And and you'll leave just asking why and how. Mm. Uh, so if I were to go in to Roxbury, and I if I were to sit down in the courtroom, like what would I experience? What would I be seeing? 
you would be seeing a lot of so so this was my observation yeah the room was divided in in half by a, a literal and figurative barrier hmm. um the literal barrier is called the bar and that's why it's called passing the bar oh. only lawyers can go beyond the bar unless it's a defendant who's answering to their case everybody else sits behind the bar all the people who were in the audience all the people who whose case was about to get called, the people who were, had been victimized, the people seeking restraining orders, the people who were witnesses, family members, all those folks were black and brown and poor and were coming to the courthouse because whatever happened the last night was the worst thing that ever happened to them or someone mm. that they loved. The people in front of the bar were all white, all from neighborhoods that had nothing to do with one that we were in, um, most of the people on the prosecutor side were very young. Most of the people on the defense side were of a diversity of ages, but it was very clear that there was a disconnect between both sides of, yeah. of the bar. And that observation was, was the starkest. And then when you start observing and you see all of this time being taken up uh, and just finding paperwork and shuffling bodies around and finding files and probation is talking to the clerk who's talking to the judge, asking the defense attorney questions, asking prosecutor questions, the dehumanization of people whose lives are at stake is really apparent. And typically after all of that stuff happens, you walk away with a court date and that's it. Or you go into the lockup and you don't come back out. And to me, I didn't even know what was happening in terms of like procedurally what was happening. And when I learned that, the, the devastation was even greater. But just watching... The, the arraignment session uh, was so educational yeah. about the problems in the criminal justice system. You're sitting in this room and you're seeing this happen and it's heartbreaking and, and you can see the divide and you know that something's broken. Do you consider at any point just saying, this is not for me. Like this is, this is a bad place. This is a broken system and I don't want any part in it. Like, did you think about just going back to your band or something else, sir. Not that I can remember. In fact, I, I sort of remember doubling down hmm. and m maybe it was like, you know, pre 30 year old arrogance or, <laughs> um, just, you know, masoch masochism. But I, I remember being immediately committed to the population that I saw to that community in particular and knew that that, was where I would end up for the better part of my career. Wow. I, and I think that that's really powerful to think about because I think a lot of us, when we are confronted with these big problems that seem too big to solve and too big to overcome, most of us, I think we either just like run from them or we become like deeply cynical about them. I truly believe that there is a third way. And that third way is to actually double down and to engage in that thing and try to create a solution. And that's something that you've done remarkably well. And that's, that's what I'd love to talk about now is, you know, with a few years ahead of you in law school, and then of course, a career ahead of you beyond that, what was your vision? What, what was your, you know, how did you start kicking into gear saying, I'm going to solve this problem. I'm, I'm going to be a part of the solution. First, I recognized that I had a lot of learning to do. Um, because I didn't know the scope of the problem. I didn't know the root of the problem. I just knew that there was one. Um, I had a police officer for a father, so I had sort of that oh, law, really? law enforcement background, so I, I could empathize 
with a lot of the things that, that was going on in the community in, in terms of what the police were doing. But I'd also been, you know, splayed out on a on a on the side of the road because there was a plastic bag in the front seat of my car. Hmm. So I I could also empathize with how the community felt about law enforcement, about the police, about the court system. So a lot of the a lot of what happened in law school, which was how how I wish law school would what law school would develop into, I was less concerned with my sort of academic courses, and I really wanted to involve myself in anything that was hands on. So I went. Um, the, my second year of law school, I immediately got a job working for a woman who uh, was a de- very successful trial trial attorney, defense attorney in town. I joined a law school clinic, so I was defending my own clients, um, attending events, attending community meetings, just tr- really trying to learn like what is happening, how did we get here? Uh, again, the scope, the breadth, and the root of the problem. And through that period of time. Uh, I think about sort of like my empathy tank for the people who are impacted by, by the criminal justice system. That really was filled by my interactions with people that I met along, along the way um, mm. at all ends of the system, prosecutors, defense attorneys, police officers, uh, victims of crime, community members, but also the people who are perpetrating crime. Wow. And so you move on from school, you know, having all of this experience, having filled up your empathy tank in a lot of ways. And and you mentioned this earlier, but your very first job post-funk rock band was at the DA's office. I am so far outside this world that I, I don't even think I really know what that means. You know, break that down for me. What, what did you know you were going in uh, to do when you started that new job? I knew that I was going to the job that had you asked me my first or second year of law school, I would have told you that you're absolutely crazy. I never would have been a prosecutor. It's the worst job. It's the worst job. I was a sellout. I was a snitch. I was a you know, fed, whatever you want to call it. It was a moral reckoning that I had to come to. Because what, what does a prosecutor do? So when you ask 100 people what a prosecutor does, 99 people will tell you they put people in jail. Hmm. Um, it is the lawyer that represents the government, and when somebody commits a crime— most people think that my job is to prove their guilt and send them to jail, and that's how yeah. I, I thrive as a prosecutor. And theoretically, there's somebody on the other side fighting just as hard to keep them out of jail, and so it's fair. Yes. But you know, oftentimes when people, and this is me guessing because I'm so far outside this world, so correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, oftentimes you know, people who are going to jail don't have a lot of money and they don't have a lot of resources. They don't have a lot of connections. And so their lawyer is less good than maybe you are. And so they end up disproportionately affected by the other, you know, 99 out of a hundred prosecutors. Yeah. There is some fact to that. The assumption I want to push back on is that somehow public defenders are less uh, talented than any other lawyers. And in fact, when, when I work with people in the community and they tell me that they're going to hire a lawyer, I tell them um, that the public defenders that I worked with in, in my entire career were the best lawyers that I've met. That's I've, really I've good. Met. That's amazing. Um, they go to that job. They sacrifice the big money law firms to go to this job because they care about the job. They care about the people. And they have this really bad reputation not being as adept at law and, and frankly – if I got arrested tomorrow for a murder, I'd be reaching out to public defenders. That's incredible. There are obviously exceptions. The woman that I worked for during my during law school was a, a woman who represented people for a fee, um, and she was 
tremendous at it. She only did that. And there's a lot of lawyers out here that do everything. And one of the things they do is criminal law and people pay them an exorbitant amount of money, not realizing that these folks have a vested interest in keeping your case open and mm, doing extraneous yeah. things that public defenders don't do. Got it. Um, That's a good clarification. Thanks for that. Yeah. And had you asked me during my second, third year of law school how I was going to change the justice system, I would have told you that I was going to be a defender because I wanted to fight as hard yeah. to keep people out of jail. Yeah. I feel like a lot of people I know who are lawyers that I am inspired by are on the defender side of things. And so, but you're, you're on the prosecutor side of things. What was your game plan? How do you do that? The one thing that I, I mean, I recognize a lot of things as a defender, but the, the one thing that was the most frustrating to me was unlike any other position in the courtroom, the defense attorney could only ask for things from people. Hmm. Um, I'm, tr- I'm trying to think of the sort of the other players, but certainly for the, for the lawyers and the judges, the defense was in the sort of worst position when it came to bargaining, when it came to uh, autonomy and, and agency. They were always on sort of the lower end of the scale the judge was somewhere in the middle and the prosecutor just had this unparalleled power from the beginning of a case to the end of a case. And I recognized at some point in time in my third year of law school that if I was going to contribute to a solution, I wanted to have all the power that I could and that meant being a prosecutor. Tell me about that first year then. Like, like what's a story of like a person that came into the courtroom that really stuck out to you? Um, there were hundreds, uh, and I was really lucky to go back to Roxbury court to be a DA. Oh really? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I started there. And was that a choice or was that just where you, okay. A choice. Cool. I, I asked that I want to be in that court when I start. That's amazing. Um, and I went there and was really lucky to have an African-American supervisor. Um, I had a lot of people that had been working there that were sort of on the social justice kick. Um, even before social justice was like a thing. Um, and so I walked into an environment that was, I don't want to say accepting, but certainly right for what mm. I, what I wanted to do there. And a lot of what I learned, um, from the people there is what made me into the kind of prosecutor that I was. One of the things that was different about that courthouse and the district attorney's office there was, was that the supervisor could see the bigger picture when people commit crimes. There were several times in, in that first year where I would come up to him and I'd say, hey, this, you know, this case is garbage. What are we really trying to do here? I don't, I'm not, I don't want to destroy this kid's life. And we got into the habit of meeting defendants and their lawyers in his office upstairs outside of the courtroom and having sort of come to Jesus talk. Hmm. And one, one of the... Uh, standouts to me was this kid who was he was selling weed so it's not the crime of the century but it was still enough that um it really would have jammed him up with the things that he was doing in life he was in a program a community-based organization that was really about professional development and he was doing well in it and he made a really stupid mistake um one frankly that i had made growing up uh we brought him up in the office and had this talk with him and then i ended up visiting the community-based organization uh which was something that we didn't really do. We didn't re- really leave the courthouse. Yeah. Um, so I went and visited this community-based organization. I saw what it was. I saw what it was doing. And I got really invested in that organization. 
And the kid, we deferred his prosecution. He didn't have a criminal record. He went on to succeed. Which is a thing you can do as a prosecutor. Yes, it is. That's one of the the greatest powers that we have is keeping people from having criminal records. And I feel like somebody could basically say to that, like, your job is to put people in jail. Why are you, like, not keeping our streets safe? How would you respond to that? I would respond to it in a variety of ways. (laughs) Uh, One is that, I don't know where you grew up, but where I grew up, my streets were very safe. It wasn't because people in my community were going to jail. It was yeah. because we had good schools. We had stable houses. We had access to health care. We had access to jobs. That's why our neighborhoods were safe. It wasn't yeah. jail. And, and by the time that a crime is committed, you know, that person's not in jail yet. That's right. the problem. Like, right. <laughs> like jail doesn't it prevents further crime, but it doesn't prevent crime. Then I would say to them, in the communities that we jail the most people, uh, and in Boston, it's Dorchester, Roxbury, and Mattapan. That's where we have the most crime. So even children in those neighborhoods know that jail isn't keeping them safe. Mm. Um, if my job as a prosecutor is to keep the community safe and be fair and just about it, there's almost a mandate or requirement that I don't send people to jail, that I figure out different ways to keep them yeah. um, functioning in the community and to keep that community safe. And so in this particular situation, it was, let's get to know this kid's story. Let's show up at his program, get to know what that program looks like. And what does that look like down the road? Like, what, what's this kid's story later? So, you know, it wasn't just a free pass. It was, there was a list of things that he had to do. One of them was to complete this program. Uh, I went to the graduation when he completed this program. Wow. And after graduation, he went to work at a an IT firm um, in North Carolina, actually, and I know that he is very involved in uh, alumni relations with the community-based organization. He's grown at this point. He has a family. He's got a great job. Um, and to me, if my job as a prosecutor is to do those things, then I challenge anybody to say that you did you did a bad job because yeah. you did something different than sending this person to jail. Yeah, you you succeeded there, and you know that guy could still be in jail because of, you know, the perpetual systems that happen the first time you go to jail. Exactly. Yeah, that's really incredible to think about. And so it, I imagine, though, that one of the problems in traditional prosecutor world is that the term of measuring your success might be the number of cases you win or the number of people that go to jail. How do you prove that you're a good prosecutor? to superiors or future bosses or the government or whatever if you don't have those numbers? You know, what what do your metrics look like then? It's a great question, and it's one that I have dedicated sort of the second part of my career to is defining that and helping Mm. people define that because, again, prosecutors have this really bad reputation as like these bounty hunters that only care about convictions and wins. And if you took any person that I ever worked with, they'd tell you that that is not true. And because trials are very easy to see, they're tangible, and a win is a win, and that's what gets reported in the paper, that's where the the mantra comes from that, that prosecutors are chasing convictions. Hmm. Um, and it's because unlike most other industries in this country uh, with time have innovated and, and begun to consider data and metrics and analytics and all that, the criminal justice system has not. And so we still have these really piss-poor measurements of what does success look like. And what I think uh, will help our system out and will help prosecutors out 
is getting some technology and tools to measure outcomes that matter. Uh, mm. Is the person that we're prosecuting more educated now than they were before? Are they uh, in a stable housing situation? Um, are they receiving health care from a mental health issue or an addiction issue? Um, are they employed? Are they engaged in pro-social activity outside of those things? Those things we know keep communities safer. Yeah. And it, prosecutors can contribute to those things by, frankly, coercion, which is something we do all the time, by knowing about those resources in the community, by implementing them. That, to me, is a good scorecard for a prosecutor. Man, and that's so incredible. And I actually... I've been following you for a long time now and I've read up a lot on you and uh, this is getting me really thinking because we talked earlier about how uh, most people when they're confronted with a big problem, they either, you know, they just ignore it and they try to just say like happy, uh, you know, ignorance is bliss or they, you know, become deeply cynical. And I feel like uh, if you look at this on a systemic level, uh, what you have with the criminal justice system might just be that, oh, wow, like this person is a problem and maybe we don't want to deal with them, so we'll just lock them up. And what you're doing is hard. You're investing in a relationship with this person that's a stranger that that did do something wrong or, or, or may have done something wrong. And you're building this entire system to to support them and care for them. And, and that's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. How do you maintain the energy and the emotional capacity? And even beyond that, how do you get more people invested in this idea when it's not the easy solution? It's only not the easy solution because it's different. Hmm. Um, the, the criminal justice system is one of the most traditional systems that you can think of. Like it literally has been running the same way since it was invented. And at the time that it was invented, it wasn't invented with best practices in mind. It was hmm. just a group of white guys sitting around and they're like, uh, let's take this piece from the crown and this piece from the crown and we'll make it something that looks like this. And, you know, other other than the advent of the defense attorney and and the rights that defendants have here, there's not much different than our criminal justice system than what was drafted during the signing of the Magna Carta. So to me, that provides an incredible amount of opportunity for mm. for little wins. I'm not looking to abolish the system that we have and start over. I'm just looking to do what's been done in ride sharing and dating apps and you know like <laughs> just these minor tweaks to revolutionize the system. Yeah, make it a little bit better one step at a time. Yep. And right now we're running at about 70% recidivism rate. 70% of the people who are coming out of jail or prison are re-engaged with the criminal justice system within two years. Wow. That's, that's terrible. Yeah, I mean, that's not helping anybody. It's not helping anybody. If you get that number to 50%, you change that by a 20% margin, that's like a Nobel Prize. And wow. th- And that's what's like... Where you can get cynical about an issue, if you just look at it the other way, it's just that there's so much room for improvement that really just doing little things will make a vast amount of improvement over a short amount of time. That is a really good note to be saying in the life is good offices. <laughs> uh, it's a very optimistic way of looking at it. And I think that that's, I, I feel like that's really beautiful and powerful. And that gets me thinking. I would say that a very, very small percentage of the people listening to this show right now are lawyers. And maybe, you know, we've got enough young people that a lot of people can go on to become a lawyer. And if, you know, if that's what they want to do, like, I would love for them to follow your path because I think that's incredible. But for people who aren't lawyers, 
what are ways that people can maintain a sense of optimism in the work that they're doing and, and make little changes to make things better instead of, you know, getting out of these systems altogether, jumping in and doing something that's maybe a little bit harder but more impactful? If it's in whatever profession they're in and they're feeling dissatisfied about outcome, look at literally everything that you do and ask yourself why you're doing that. Mm. And if you're not satisfied with the answer, then do something different. Uh, I'm not encouraging insubordination or mutiny, but um, oftentimes tradition gets in the way of innovation and creativity. And just asking a supervisor, do you mind if I try this out just to see if we can save some money or some time or, or get a new client, whatever it is? Like That, to me, is the most effective thing that can, people can do is always be questioning why they're doing something and if it is attendant to their their final outcome. You know, what can people do to contribute to the work that that I'm doing? Because a lot of people yeah. a lot of people hear me speak and they're like, well I'm not a lawyer and I'm not gonna be a prosecutor and so how do I fix this? The criminal justice system to me doesn't represent the place that people go for their failure and their failure alone. Most of the people in the criminal justice system have been through a variety of public systems before they ever get to me. That's because uh, we as citizens, we as taxpayers who are funding these, these public agencies don't do a very good job of following up because they don't impact us. So when I, at the beginning of this conversation when I said, um, when you asked me about going to court, what I tell people all the time, first thing that you should do is go sit in a public courthouse. They're public mm. for a reason. That reason is because you're paying for it. It's your money. And as a consumer of the criminal justice system, even if it's not impacting you directly, you should still be able to go and sit and see how your money is being spent. And if you're not satisfied, do something about it. When judges and prosecutors see people who clearly don't belong in the courthouse in the courthouse, people get nervous. And to me, that is a mm, positive. That's good. When they know that they're being watched. When they're not there and it's just the people who are always in the courthouse, black and brown and poor people, nobody cares. And that's a problem. Two, when you think about the failures of public systems to get, get people to the criminal justice system, um, they start when a young person hasn't even been born yet. Uh, and they are things that really don't require expertise or you know specialization in any field or re relatability. I, I see a lot of people like, well, they're not going to relate to me because I'm white and I'm from the suburbs, but it's we're all human beings and we love the same things. And that's just, we love being treated well, cared for, talked to, and even sometimes disciplined um, because that's another way of showing care. And so from what I often do is, is talk about the trajectory of people from birth to the criminal justice system committing a serious crime as a way to illustrate for people all of the ways, all of the places where we as, as private citizens can spend a little bit of our time yeah. and impact their life in a very different way. It's really good to think about. And I, I love the idea of showing up in a courtroom and the idea of, of looking around at the people all around you and, and realizing that you have an opportunity to impact their lives. Because like you said earlier, I think those things can fill up your empathy tank. I think that the more empathy we have, the more compelled we feel to actually take action. And, you know, and then it comes right back around to, you know, you can just make small changes to actually uh, impact things on a day-to-day -day level. And maybe you hit 20% and then you get a Nobel Prize. And that's the first thing is people, even the sort of the most woke people that, that I've been working with over the last 18 months, 
they have a difficult time reconciling sympathy with empathy. So I see a lot of people sympathizing and they feel bad about the problem. Oh, there's 2.3 million people in jail and 50% of them are black and most of them are poor. Most of them are mentally ill. Most of them are drug addicted and they feel bad about that. That doesn't get you anywhere. Being sympathetic about something is not going to make you change your behavior or do, do something different. Empathy, on the other hand, is a very different concept and it's not, I don't feel bad. I understand context. And so what... I think people first need to do is really reconcile with themselves. Is it that I feel guilty and bad about this or am I looking at something in a different way because I'm, I'm starting to understand context. Mm. And once you've gotten there and you do that in a variety of ways, one is exposure, going to the courthouse, going to an after school program, going to a public school that's not your kids, um, going to a community event that's not in your community. Once you've done those things, and or watch content. So watch the 13th, watch Crown Heights, read Just Mercy, read the new Jim Crow, um, read my book when it comes out. Um, <laughs> Love that plug. Nice. I can't uh, wait for it. Thanks. Once you've done that and, and you're building your empathy tank, then and only then can you start to talk about actively working towards a solution. Because if you go in sympathizing with people, like people in the HUD don't need your sympathy. I don't want you to be my ally because you feel bad for me. I want you to be my ally because you recognize your privilege. You understand the context of it. You understand the context of my underprivilege. And you're doing something because you want to make that equitable. Not out of guilt, but out of an understanding that this is unfair. And so how do you do that? You go and read to kids instead of going to yoga. You go and volunteer at a reentry program and do mock interviews for people who are trying to get in the workforce. If you're a business owner, you're hiring a formerly incarcerated person and not keeping them on the job because you feel bad, but keeping them on the job that because you understand that them showing up late and them not showing up at all and all sorts of problems is, is the vestiges of a life that they didn't learn those soft skills. So mm. really like hanging in there and, and teaching people. Man, I love how Adam is so passionate and talented at equipping our community and local prosecutors by bringing about transformative change in our criminal justice system. It's so important. And Adam is the perfect example of what we mean when we talk about messy hope, the kind of authentic optimism that only comes from getting your hands dirty. And clearly, Adam has demonstrated he is not afraid of doing this. The next time that you or I are coming to grips with the severe pain or injustice in the world, ask yourself the question that Adam did at the end of the show. Is it that I feel guilty and bad about this? Or am I finally looking at something in a different way because I'm starting to understand its context? I think that when we step towards understanding more context and when we ask ourselves this question, it gives us the opportunity to truly fill our empathy tank which can ultimately lead to real, authentic, and lasting solutions. I highly recommend following Adam Foss on Twitter and Instagram. He's such a powerful presence on the internet, and I'm personally challenged and encouraged when I see his posts. I hope that you'll check him out too. I actually got to hang out with Adam for a while after our conversation. We were, of course, at the Life is Good event together, and then we went out for drinks afterwards, and we just got to talk a lot about how we can make an impact and how we can join in and making a difference. And there's all kinds of stuff. And I hope to get to talk with Adam again for the podcast because he has so much to his story outside of the conversation we had today. 
But two action steps that I came away with were these. Number one, this was my personal recommendation. Go and support Adam's nonprofit. It's called Prosecutor Impact. Just go to his website and donate. I love the work that they're doing. I think it's really important. So do that. Then the second thing, this is Adam's recommendation. He says to pay really close attention to your local elections and especially pay close attention to who you elect for the DA's office. It's really important. That's something that honestly, I don't pay as much attention to as I should. For the most part, when I vote, I pay a lot more attention to the items at the top of the ticket than lower down on the ticket. But electing a really good DA has an incredible impact on social justice in your community. And so just be on the lookout for that. Think about it and tell your friends as well. If you're new to the podcast and liked this conversation, welcome. We're so glad to have you. I hope that you stick around and listen to a few more episodes. Two recommendations for you. Why don't you go listen to the other two people that I spoke with at the Life is Good event. Uh, We've got former podcast guest Ruthie Lindsay, one of my all-time favorite people, one of our most popular episodes of all time. You don't want to miss hearing her story or if you've heard it before, listening to her story again. It's so good. And then also check out my conversation with John Jacobs, the co-founder of Life is Good. We got to meet in person while I was in Boston and he's incredible. He's the best. I absolutely love his conversation, Ruthie's conversation. Go check him out. And while we're on the topic of John and Life is Good, seriously, I want to say thank you again to the entire Life is Good team for connecting me with Adam, letting me use their space to record this conversation and for caring so much about hope and optimism and this idea that, you know, life isn't always easy, but life is good. I actually mentioned this in my episode with John, but uh, I am one of the quote unquote bases of life is good, which mostly means that I'm just a life is good super fan at this point, And I'm currently wearing a hat that says life is good, which reminds me that if you have a photo that represents optimism and hope, Share it online with the hashtag Faces of Life is Good. And even check out their site, lifeisgood.com slash Faces of Life is Good. If you're not subscribed to the podcast yet, push the subscribe button today. Yes, like right now. It's so easy. It's worth it. We do not want you to miss out on the amazing, incredible conversations we're having with inspiring people over the next few weeks and months and years to come. So hit the subscribe button and episodes will download straight to your phone while you sleep. It's amazing. This podcast is created by me, Brandon Harvey, as part of Good, 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 a community that believes in the power of celebrating good news and becoming good news. You can get lots of hopeful stories on social media by following us everywhere at at Good, Good, Good Co. We also create a beautiful quarterly newspaper that celebrates the people, ideas, and movements that are changing the world for the better. Check it out and see what else we do at Good 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 at goodgoodgood.co. And on that note, that is a wrap for this week's episode. Go out and do some good this week, and we'll be back next week with another inspiring story from an incredible person. Sound good?